Good morning. Um, a quick um, update on, on my son, just so you, I know so many of you are holding us in your prayers. Um, so he, he's doing fine. He feels good. Um, we have a, a really important scan on Tuesday, so the 8th, two days from now. Or, yeah. um, it's an MRI. It's the first one we've done for a few months, really, since his surgery to see how the radiation uh, has done, and so we should have a sense. They're really looking to make sure that nothing is grown, and then we uh, will start chemotherapy on the 21st of August, and that's for six months. And so we're kind of moving through the system. He and his, he and his sister are in Georgia right now with my parents, um, and then he's got another trip planned to Seattle with some buddies before chemo starts. You know, he's trying to take advantage of things while he feels really, really well before chemo starts. So, uh, can't tell you how much it, it means to us that this community is holding us through this, so thank you. Know that it matters. So, so yeah, so he's, he's okay right now. Um, thank you. Okay. Let's pray. Gracious God, in this moment, in this place, in each of our hearts, come visit us, speak a word to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we can't blame Jacob for trying, right? After this mysterious figure changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means one who strives with God, it must have dawned on him who he had been wrestling with all night. So he tries his luck. You know, since I uh, just told you my name, how about you tell me yours? It is not the only time in the Hebrew Bible that a mere mortal attempted to take his relationship with God to a first-name basis. Moses famously tried it after stumbling onto God at the burning bush, but God told him simply, I am who I am, which sounds like a line from Green Eggs and Ham to me <laughs> and is about as helpful as that. To Jacob, though, God answers a question with a question. Why do you ask me my name? As if to say, you and I both know that you couldn't handle it if I told you. I am, after all, the Almighty, the Goat, the greatest of all time. I am the, pow the most powerful creator of all of the universe, and you are a tiny speck in that universe. I am unknowable unnameable, uncontrollable, uncontainable. I am who I am. This insight that God is so far beyond our human grasp that for our own safety we should stay on more formal terms may not have started with the ancient tribes of Israel, but they certainly took it to heart. For example, in the ancient temple in Jerusalem, there was an inner sanctum that they called the Holy of Holies, where God was said to reside, a room considered so holy that no one was allowed to enter it except for the high priest, and even he only once a year on Yom Kippur. 
So strict was this rule that Jewish tradition says that they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest before he went in. That way, if he happened to die while he was in there, they would have a way of getting him out. Once in the Holy of Holies, he performed a ritual that included a sacrifice for the sins of the community. And then before he left, he was to speak aloud the word for God. It was the only time all year that anyone was allowed to speak it. That word we now translate as Yahweh. But in Hebrew, the word is made from three letters that function primarily as vowels, making it almost impossible to know how to say it, which is, of course, the point. Some scholars note that it would have sounded similar to breathing, something like which prompted a gifted bat mitzvah student once to suggest that since that could also sound like crying, maybe the first thing every newborn does when they come into the world is speak the name of God. Judaism is not alone in its concern with protecting God's unknowability. Islam has its own strict rules about images of Muhammad and artwork in mosques. Ask a Buddhist what God is and you will get into a conversation about emptiness. Hinduism goes in the other direction with so many different images of God. Well, they end up making the same point, really. And even our own John Calvin, arguing against the Catholic Church's opulent decoration and crosses with a hanging Jesus, believed images depicting the invisible God were contrary to the second commandment. My point here is that we should know better. We have been warned. We know we're supposed to have the discipline to just sit in the mysterious I amness of it all. But we don't seem to be very good at it. It says something about us that at the same time that Moses was up in the cloud with God on Mount Sinai, Aaron and the Israelites were down below taking a collection to make a golden calf, a cow in the hand clearly being worth more than a god in the clouds. We just don't seem able to resist reducing God to a human scale. We make jokes, for example, about God being an old man with a beard sitting on a throne. But for many of us, some version of that image is deeply embedded and still shapes how we see God and therefore how we see the world. Some of us grew up in churches where at least that old man was kind and loving, a father figure. For others, though, he was a cold disciplinarian that we were afraid of and perhaps still are, which is heartbreaking for me. Because not only is this just an image, it is one created and promoted by church leaders who I would almost guarantee grew up with cold disciplinarian fathers. 
Any image of God that isn't grounded in the loving, welcoming, generous, joyful, forgiving image of Jesus that Jesus modeled for us is something we can let go of. Or even better, I think, is to go beyond all of our images and ideas about God and learn to trust our own direct experience. Because to say that God is unknowable is not to say that God is unrecognizable. We each have the ability to encounter the living God like Jacob. He did not get to know God's name, but he did experience God intimately, powerfully, profoundly, and we can too. Remember the dot and the circle metaphor that I gave you a few weeks ago? To see ourselves as dots inside of the circle of God means two things. One, that we can never fully see the totality of God, which is what I've been saying this morning. But it also means that we are never not in the presence of God. God is never not right here, right now. And sometimes we experience that in profound, life-changing moments. I talked about some of the experiences I've had a few weeks ago. But today I have in mind something more every day. No less hard to put into words, though. But I'm going to try. So if we start with the idea that everything in the world is bounded and bordered by other things, then what if when we use the word God, what we are talking about is the one thing that is not a thing? What if by God we mean the great no thing that gives rise to everything? And what if God is experienced as the, as the silence beneath the noise, as the space between things? Or as Paul Tillich famously put it, what if God is the ground of being? Which I know is all still pretty abstract. So to speak very literally, what if we can experience God as a kind of aliveness moving in and through everything, including ourselves. An aliveness that is subtle but ever-present. An aliveness we don't usually notice. But when we slow down enough and get quiet enough, it's right here, like a hum or kind of like the light shining through the stained glass windows. We get so focused on the windows themselves, the, the things of this world, that we don't notice that there is light shining through them. And when we get really quiet and really still, we notice this aliveness that we feel isn't just neutral. It shines with certain qualities like joy 
and peace and love. And when we are resting in its presence, we can feel those same qualities in ourselves, perhaps because, as Genesis says, we are made in its image. It's not that God is made in our image. God doesn't have arms and legs. We are made in God's image, that same unnameable, unknowable, no thing is in us. Because this aliveness, this is God, I think. It's not the fullness of God. The fullness of God will always be beyond us, but it is a, a, a window, a glimpse, a presence which is always right in front of us. Remember the high priest with the rope tied to his leg before he went into the Holy of Holies? There's an alternate explanation in the tradition that claims that the rope wasn't there in case he died. It was there because they knew that when he beheld the magnificence of God's presence, he would never want to leave. My hope is that more and more, this is how you and I live our days. That the more we learn to let go of those tired, old, too small images of God, the more we will learn to attune our hearts to that pulse of aliveness in the world. The more with every inhale and exhale, we will learn to say that unnameable name of God. And that even in the midst of life's stress and worry, the more we will be able to see that we are already in the Holy of Holies. We always have been.